Hey, everybody. I am back. And I just want to thank you for waiting patiently. This is my first episode in like, what, six weeks. And last time I apologized for my long interval between episodes back then. And I promised I'd get back on track. And well, I didn't know such thing. And so what's been happening? Well, the world's still going crazy. The war is still raging on, though most Americans have predictably lost interest. Uh, the term recession has been redefined. Powell continues to uh, increase uh, interest rates with another 75 basis points pop. Uh, more crypto legislation has been proposed. The SEC is still in court with Ripple. Um, we've had yet more crypto losses, scams, and meltdowns. And Pelosi went to Taiwan. And Beyonce got bitch slapped for using the word spaz. Uh, oh, and Vin Scully died. And the price of abortions are going parabolic. And Trudeau is now going after farmers. And fire season has started. And, and basically, that's what's happened in my absence. So, so why have I been neglecting my podcasting duties? Well, for one thing, I've been busy as hell with work. Nobody cares about this. And I know you don't, but I keep getting new clients and new jobs and there's just no end in sight. Um, my taxes are going to be frightening this year. Um, but I, but I've come up with a bunch of topics that I wanted to talk about during the last six weeks. Like when Shinzo Abe was assassinated, I put together a full episode about him. Um, I mean, maybe that's not retirement related specifically, but but that whole story came and went, and as somewhat of a Japanophile, I wanted to give Abe a little respect, a little send-off. But then I started reading about him in accounts from what we call the press today, and the 28-year-old dipshits who write the news that you and I read were painting him as like some evil, ultra-conservative, ultra-nationalist, um, like an angry xenophobe. Anyway... If you know anything about Japan, it's kind of uh, a nationalistic culture just by its nature. You don't get 14-year-olds to learn how to fly airplanes and then send them off with a shot of sake so they can fly themselves into an aircraft carrier if you're not, well, a, a bit nationalistic. Anyway, my point is every piece of news that came through that I thought was either interesting or might either affect your investments, your net worth, or your future um, – everything was immediately politicized both ways, uh, you know, equal opportunity politicization. Um, and I'd get halfway through developing my position before just saying, fuck that shit. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Get your own retirement news, wade through the biased horseshit reporting, whether it's coming from the New York times or Fox news and make your own malinformed decisions based on the news that you consume. Anyway, short answer, uh, maybe the truth, I, I guess maybe I had writer's block. So anyway, apologies for the absence. I'm back. One thing I did do while I was gone, uh, I visited the lovely city of San Francisco. I had a job down there and I was able to walk around town dodging feces. I went to a Giants game which was great. Um, they destroyed the Diamondbacks, like lots of home runs. Uh, I at my favorite restaurant in the city, which was awesome. No, it wasn't Stinking Rose or John's Grill or House of Nanking or Joe's or Tommy's Joint. Um, this place is actually called Fino. It's on Post Street between Taylor and Jones. Next time you're in town, check it out. I love it. It's a little pasta place, like really little. And it's not like over-the-top Guido Italian, but just super solid, super consistent, good service, good booze, uh, good bartenders. And it was as good as ever, except for the tech bro man-spreading like a rude Silicon Valley stereotype at the bar next to me. 
and by the way, this was a female tech bro. Um, and there, there was a, there was a full bar stool between us, but with her iPad, her iPhone, her salad plate, her bread plate, I barely had room for my anchor steam and Woodford reserve. And like I said, there was a full bar stool between us. So anyway, she was close to being done when I saddled up, which was good. I had the bolognese and it was awesome as usual, but how's San Francisco these days? Well, if you haven't been there in a decade, um, you wouldn't recognize it. They've made it so that you can enjoy Union Square, which is actually kind of funny. They've gotten rid of all the homeless folks and wrapped it with a perimeter of cop cars and police RV substations. So it's not too welcoming, but you can walk through Union Square and you won't step on a sharp. But everything that I've said about San Francisco in previous rants is still very, very true. It's somewhat worse than when I was there in 2019 uh, from all outward appearances. It feels a little less safe and there are a few more people walking around having little mental health breakdowns screaming at the sky and, uh, oh, and the drugstores are a mess. Now, pretty much everything that your local Walgreens or Rite Aid, including shampoo, is behind glass. So you need an employee to go get it for you. Funny, the food isn't locked up because, well, the meth-addicted patrons who come in to steal baby formula and other stuff that they can immediately sell for cash, well, they're not looking for food. Anyway, that's San Francisco. And um, he, oh, and here's a piece of golden advice for you if you are going to visit the city. Bring shoes that you're about done with, okay? I brought a pair of my old Adidas sneakers that I was pretty much done with. Uh, they didn't have holes in the bottom, but I brought them knowing that I wasn't gonna bring them back. So uh, I walked around town, I wore them around, took them off immediately upon entering my hotel room and changed into flip-flops and well, that's another story. But anyway, at the end of my trip, I simply left those sneakers there because I didn't want to pack them, given God knows what kind of hepatitis or black plague they had on them after walking seven or eight miles around the city. So it was a win-win. And really, you should probably do the same thing if you visit San Francisco, because, I mean, after a few days of playing hopscotch, jumping around, trying not to step in human shit, well, eventually you're going to lose. And do you really want to ever bring those shoes home again? And if so, do you want to put them into multiple plastic biohazard bags and pack them in your suitcase, then bring them home and wash them in the same washing machine where you wash your bath towels? No, no, you don't. Anyway, that's uh, your San Francisco update. So next up, Bitcoin and crypto. So 2022 has been a bad year for the crypto market. I don't have to tell you that as I record this, Bitcoin is still floundering around the 23K level. Um, what does this mean for me? Well, a couple of things. One, I was blessed to need a pile of cash around tax time. I think I mentioned that. So I had to sell all my altcoins, uh, except maybe a couple. That said, I was still able to double my money on Solana, which is now seriously in the toilet. And on other coins, well, things didn't turn out so well, but I'm glad to be out. What I've learned from this year, again, I've said this before, there is Bitcoin and there's everything else. The other thing there's a difference between a stable coin and an algorithmic stable coin. More on that later. Will I ever buy altcoins again? Well, for gambling purposes, probably. Would I recommend it to my friends? Absolutely not. As we'll be covering in some upcoming episodes, the majority of my friends have no idea what a bond is, much less what's going on in the crypto space. So I'll talk about some of that stuff here, but no, I would not recommend playing with altcoins to anyone I know. Now, 
What about Bitcoin? So I've been buying at varying levels of aggressiveness since early 2021. Of course, I bought some in 2017, I think I've mentioned, and then sold it um, like an idiot. But I remember last summer when we were at maybe 39K and Robert Kiyosaki said that he'd start buying again if it went down to 27. I thought, man, that's never going to happen. Well, it did. We're, we're under 27 now. And I've said this before, anytime we have the opportunity to buy Bitcoin for under $50,000 a coin, it's a gift from God. Oh, and did you hear this week that BlackRock announced it was making Bitcoin available to its customers via a little partnership with Coinbase? That's BlackRock. BlackRock. It's not your local stockbroker down the street or your crooked Dave Ramsey Smartvester Pro. That's BlackRock with $10 trillion in assets under management. Oh, and Fidelity making Bitcoin available in its 401k plans. Anyway, those little news tidbits to me are little chunks of the dam falling off right before or maybe weeks or months or years before the dam breaks. You don't know how long it can hold out, but at some point... It's going to succumb to the pressure, and this is demand pressure. Supply, well, supply is fixed, uh, and that dam is going to break. So anyway, am I buying Bitcoin during this dip? You're goddamn right I am. Of course, there are other things that are going on that give me so much confidence in Bitcoin, and I'll keep talking about it here in future episodes. But seriously, we are in a crazy time where we have a second chance. The network is continuing to grow. Adoption worldwide, the asset continues to be accepted in more and more places, in more and more countries, by more banks and brokerages. And we have the chance to buy it at prices a lot of people, including myself, thought we'd never see again. Okay, more Bitcoin info in later episodes. In fact, I'm going to do a, a like a little kind of like a mini educational series pretty soon just because so many people my age are hesitant to even learn about it. You know, A, it's kind of technically intimidating, but B, people are just kind of lazy and don't want to and, and, and just the, there's fear. So anyway, I just want you to have as much information as possible but with which to make your personal assessment, especially while the price is floating around in these low levels. So I will be talking more about Bitcoin, uh, some more detailed information in later episodes. So next up, I do want to give a little time and respect to Shinzo Abe. I know it's belated, but, um, you know, things have been crazy. So I do want to share this. So in the wake of his death, I found a reasonably well-constructed obituary uh, in The Guardian, um, link in the show notes, and it, it was a pretty neutral look at his career. So I wanted to share some of that with you right now. Few other Japanese leaders in living memory have left as deep an imprint on their country as Shinzo Abe. One of the most transformative politicians of the post-war era, he was shot dead at the age of 67 while giving a campaign speech in the western city of Nara ahead of elections to the upper house. When he stepped down as prime minister in 2007, after only a year, people assumed he would fade into an undistinguished career on the back benches. Yet just over a decade later, he had become Japan's longest-serving premier, with a host of major political reforms to his name, and even his own globally recognized brand of economic stimulus, Abenomics. In 2012, when Abe reclaimed the helm of state in a landslide election, the Japanese economy, once the second largest in the world, 
had flatlined for two decades. Though many had tried, none had succeeded in rousing it out of stagnation. Facing tough odds, Abe took a three-pronged approach to dramatically increasing the money supply, boosting government spending, and driving through structural reform. His Abenomics combination was to deliver a massive jolt that aimed to lift inflation to 2%, stimulate consumer spending, and reinvigorate the, quote, animal spirits of Japan's capitalist class. The bold neoliberal move shook awake the moribund stock market and drove substantial gains for Japan's big export companies. The excitement of change and an open future propelled Abe into the global spotlight as he declared, Japan is back. Abe pushed through further reforms, many exposing his arch-conservative leanings, which had changed little from his first premiership. However, born aloft by the wind of Abenomics, he was able to see through policy objectives that were stymied earlier. His State Secrets Act rendered many whistleblowing activities illegal and subject to harsh punishment. Against widespread public protest, he expanded military spending, and reinterpreted the Constitution to enable Japan's self-defense forces to help allies under attack. Controversially, he restarted nuclear energy, which had lain dormant since the Fukushima disaster of 2011. Facing a population in decline, Abe unfurled programs to boost marriage and fertility rates, making significant expansions to child care under the maternalist wartime slogan of Give Birth, Increase the Population. Women's employment expanded, but mainly in temporary contract jobs, where he rolled back goals for promoting women in leadership positions in business from 30% to a mere 5%. However, Abenomics never fully delivered the economic recovery it promised. The loose monetary policy sent government debt soaring to nearly 240% of GDP under his watch. Instead of a spending revival, average household income de declined as gains were not redistributed to and consumers were hit by controversial sales tax increases. The inflation rate, the engine of the reform, never got to 2%, and indeed by 2020 it was negative. The late capitalist trio of debt, deflation, and depopulation continued to hound him. Still, by the middle of 2020, Abe was Japan's longest-serving prime minister, having closed the rotating door to the seat that had been held by 14 people in the previous two decades. What was the secret of his success? In 2007, he had ended his year-long first term as prime minister in the face of money scandals and election losses. When he was re-elected five years later, the landscape had changed. His campaign slogan from a 2014 snap election gave the most succinct answer. Quote, there is no other path. The opposition parties were in disarray, and stalwarts from Abe's liberal democratic party could only cheer when its main rival, the Democratic Party of Japan, split in two, there was simply no challenge on the horizon or within the LDP. In a savvy political move, Abe blocked off the traditional source of alternative views within Japan's largely one-party democracy, namely competition among factions within the LDP. He neutered his main challengers by handing them difficult ministerial portfolios and tamed the once largely independent civil service by appointing key positions himself. He also disciplined the media through his chief cabinet officer and successor in office, Yoshihide Suga, known for his bulldog approach to reporters. In this new context, the money scandals that continued to dog Abe across his second term were a mere annoyance rather than a real threat. 
Abe's greatest achievements lay in foreign policy, if measured in maintaining stability. As prime minister, he was continuously on the road, visiting more countries than any predecessor, as he fanned out from Japan's traditional alliances to secure trade deals across the world. His strong nationalist leanings were often, if not always, tempered when dealing with Japan's closest neighbors, still sensitive over Japan's imperial aggressions. He did much to secure the Japan-U.S. alliance even as it came under pressure, particularly as the White House adopted increasingly tough language against its traditional allies. Abe's diplomatic skills earned him the nickname the Trump Whisperer, as the U.S. backed down from threats of import tariffs and an increase in the fees Japan pays to host American military bases. When the U.S. pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Abe kept the pact alive, becoming the standard bearer of the regional alliance. Yet he was never able to lay hands on his most sought-after trophy, revising the Constitution. Amendment had long been part of the LDP platform, but Abe went much further than his predecessors to push for changing a document that had not been revised since 1947. The heart of the contention was Article 9, which renounces the right of war. But Abe hoped to alter nearly every article in the document, often derided as an imposition by U.S. occupying forces. Yet, constitutional revision has long been controversial among a public that has embraced the peace article as part of national identity. Okay, quick side note here. For those of you who didn't take Japanese history in college, I just want to point out here that we, the Americans, and more specifically General Doug MacArthur, wrote the Japanese constitution for them, okay? Yeah, there's more to it than that. But when NPR tries to tell you that Abe was this divisive arch-conservative or an ultra-nationalist for seeking to revise this constitution, those dipshits at NPR, well, and, and those are actual tweets from NPR that they put out after he was killed. Anyway, he was working on a document that was written basically by the U.S. Army after we had bombed the shit out of Japan and the constitution prohibited them from having their own military forces. Okay, and I don't know about you, but if you are on the east side of the Sea of Japan, looking over at China, North Korea, and Russia, you might want a battleship or two. Anyway, I digress back to Abe's obituary. Thus, Abe took a careful but unrelenting approach. He lowered the voting age to get young people on board. He launched public relations campaigns against some outmoded phrasing in the document, and he raised the issue after every election win. Still, caution prevailed. The revision never went to vote. Many predicted that Abe would ride the hype of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics to push through changes at long last. But once those became the 2021 Olympics, it became clear that ever-receding goal would remain out of grasp. By summer of 2020, Abe was struggling under criticism of government's response to COVID-19 and with the return of ulcerative colitis that had uh, occasioned his first resignation in 2007. In September 2020, he stepped down to become one of the most influential politicians on the back benches, ensuring the succession of his allies, Suga and Fumio Kishida, into the prime ministership. Born in Tokyo, Shinzo was the son of Yoko Kishi and Shintaro Abe. After studying public administration at Seiki University and public policy at the University of Southern California, he took up employment, first in industry, later in assistant roles within government. In 1993, he formally entered the family business, politics, when he was elected to the House of Representatives. The seat he took had long been held by his father, a career politician and former minister. 
The political pedigree on his mother's side, however, was yet more influential. Shinzo's great-uncle, Eisaku Sato, was the longest-serving prime minister of the post-war years before Abe overtook him. But more of an inspiration was his maternal grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, who became prime minister after he was rehabilitated from accusations of war crimes. Abe's long struggle to revise the Japanese constitution was often seen as a continuation of a battle that his grandfather championed. In 1987, Abe married Akie Matsuzaki, an heiress and former radio disc jockey whose outspoken views gained her the title of domestic opposition party during her husband's premiership. Given the relatively smooth passage he had from the Diet during his eight years in power, this may have been the greatest source of political challenge he encountered. She survives him. Shinzo Abe, politician, born September 21st, 1954, died July 8th, 2022. Okay, that's it for today. We'll talk to you soon. And this time, I do mean soon. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com. 